so already there's like four or five hundred years of compositional notation that's kind of being displayed in the galleries all alongside each other so it collapses the idea of history as well or historical difference. Did we talk about this at the Philip Brophy installation but do you, do you enjoy or do you like generally like seeing musical works in, exhibited in gallery spaces? Or do you prefer mm. performance, which is kind of a bit more like discreet in the sense that it's mm. got a yeah, I think you know, the, set the loop structure to it? doesn't do many favours to the music or something. Right, the problem of the loop. Museum for yeah. Modern Art at the University of Melbourne at an exhibition called The Score, which I note has a weirdly serifed, sans serifed R in the title that protrudes into the sort of opening space in the top part of the R. Do you know what the term for that is in the like the ligature? The ligature. No, ligature is when they join. That is a... I didn't even notice that because the light's falling yeah. like half on the score title. So the introductory text to the museum is lit yeah. in this kind of rectangular frame by a, a directional light that comes from all the way out the back of the gallery to direct your attention to the, the text introducing the score. And the light's kind of fallen a bit, so it's not quite lighting the text anymore. Or it's lighting most of the text, it's not the title. Kind of unfortunate. The lighting in the rest of the gallery is nice Those illuminated pages <laughs> look really amazing. Mm. So the, the sort of two yeah. immediate works are sheet music the most compositions obviously recognizable scores probably in the gallery that i've seen so far i got here a bit earlier mm. um charlie sofo a giant 
in the new musical world. Has he done much music? I'm not sure. I, I, I looked from here and I thought John Cage is 4 minutes 33. It's called Me and You and the left page is Me. Mm. It's, a, it's a modern notation system. What do you call that? Sheet music? Yeah. Modern style sheet music. Me, the Me page is empty with only bar markings. And then the You page on a separ in a separate frame to the right is a jumble with incredibly complex notes. and almost impossibly difficult notes and sequences. You'd have to be a musician to know how to play that. Yeah. It looks real. It looks like a, you could play it. So me, 4 minutes 33, you, Ligeti. Is that... Um, yeah. have to ask, uh, you'll have to ask him what... Ask Charlie. And then so uh, immediately opposite to these two, well this one work, but the, it's in two pieces, me and you, uh, what looks from here to be like 15th century, 14th century illuminated manuscript pages from the Rare Books collection of the University of Melbourne's Bailiou Library. The artist is marked as a Catholic Church. The artist of these works yeah. is the institution of the Catholic Church itself. Yeah. For without it, we wouldn't have art as we understand it today. We wouldn't have musical notation, perhaps. I mean, illuminated manuscripts for me was quite a like, sort of turning point in my thinking about it. Like, how involved I wanted to be in art. I did a subject with Margaret Mannion Mary, uh, here oh. at the um, college because it had been kind of like um, de-situated from the, uh, the School of Culture and Communication and luckily the Newman College um, president or the chancellor, mm -hmm. or I don't know what they call the people that run the colleges here, but had saved Margaret Mannion's own archive and Hi, collection of rare manuscripts um, and continued to run the subject from Newman College, which I took mm -hmm. in undergraduate. Mm. And uh, it really um, blew me away. It was really amazing having Margaret Mannion teach. Mm -hmm. uh, you still couldn't pick the century that these works were made in? Well, I was close. You were close, only a hundred years. At a certain point, the illuminated manuscript tradition gets pretty kind of... Uh, this could be from you know, the 18th century, really, I guess. Well, we? yeah, Probably I mean... Probably not with the, these block letters, the block notes. It's just an interesting moment between reproduction or like sort of prior to sort of what we understand is like the printing press mode of mm -hmm. like mass reproduction and the reproduction of text in manuscript form, which would have been copied and, um, you know, uh, produced with these idiosyncratic like um, marginalia and illuminations um, that is really quite like singular or something in the history of mm -hmm. of the arts I suppose because the production techniques are so elaborate and at the same time there's this sort of like formal uh, standardization mm -hmm. But at the same time, they are so like um, novel. Every single yeah, manuscript yeah. has got this kind of like, you know, the hand of the 
the master of the mm. of the illumination is like you know I'm sure that someone who knows a lot about illuminated manuscripts will be able to tell you from a distance like who the or at least where the the manuscript is coming from. I'm wondering if the the idea the concept of a printing press would come without the institution of manuscript production and dissemination mm. through the church mm. through all the lands of Christendom. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that's the point, right? That at a, cer a certain stage in, in in the history of like yeah, the sort of Western um, like Anglophone mm. tradition, it was like the case that every library should have a copy of every book mm. that's been made, or every text that's been kind of like canonized by the church. The first right? books that were printed by Gutenberg didn't they have some interesting? Like kind of manuscript style effects, like he only used this. Like even though he could print on the whole page, he would always just keep the um, frame of the mm. the borders of the manuscript of a traditional manuscript. I think. I yeah, well, like, like as that. with like all sort of like stylistic developments, there's this like sort of quite noticeably, um, uh, I guess conventional yeah. structure I mean, that like is completely like ornamentations, conventions for notation and, and as the introductory text said, metaphors for translation through different mediums, mm. the word and the note and the performance thereof and in dance and different things. Mm. But it starts obviously with this mm. kind of, you know, uh, standard notation idea of um, the, the staves with mm. the uh, treble and bass. This is Dylan Martorell's gallery. Yeah. So now we've come into sort of like the second part, which explodes that idea of the. I don't understand the, the operating device between the plants and then the scores. And the scores. I don't. I don't see how those two work together. And well, I was here when he was performing in this space a couple of weeks oh, really? ago. Yeah. And. He performed underneath this wire sort of instrument, I suppose you would call it. But uh, he explained how the scores were based on right, and how the scores are based on natural structures, like the okay. the um, you know shape of a leaf, for example, used to create um, musical notation. So he's just on the going page. a few sciencey steps further. Yeah, and everything obviously is being like kind of geometry. Uh, like mm. geometrically organized into like Euclidean shapes, I suppose you would call them. I guess like it's so you have on the one hand you have the performance of the music which you know only exists in that moment when you hear it, and then mm. on the other hand you have all these different scientific and uh, devices for interpreting plants. Yeah, which are like I guess in some way just the same organic and beyond interpretation or something. Yeah, well the idea of formalizing organic material yeah. Yeah. or sort of naturally occurring substances. Yeah. And how in how that would take place. There's just so many layers of interpretation here and I just I find it really like I just feel like a dumbass, you know. Yeah, but ultimately <laughs> they're idiosyncratic and that they're beyond interpretation in a generalizable way because yeah. they conform to some sort of um, loose rule-based structure. Funny? That 
Is it funny? Yeah, like I find it kind of ridiculous as well. Yeah. Because it's the tension ultimately between, say, like a private idea of like language and meaning versus this sort of reason why you would have musical notation in the first place is in that you can have, um, you know, an abstract score for someone to receive and then reproduce in a way that's like exactly to the specifications of the yeah. composer, you know, in, down to the, um, you know, uh, intensity of each note and how it's played and yeah. the overall structure of the performance and so on. This mm. incredibly scientified and unromantic music making mm. system. Mm. <laughs> But musical notation itself, is, in the way that we understand it, only really emerged in the 16th or 17th century, I think. And um, therefore you get these kind of, this moment early on in, say, like the manuscript mm. uh, tradition. Um, when did they first start putting notation down in manuscripts for, for choral and, you know? Well, that's a good things. question, but I know that there's examples of, say, like, uh, illuminated manuscripts with completely sort of undecipherable scores in them mm. that were, you know, romantic in the sense that they were attempts by the composers to sort of formalise what they saw as the beauty of the music that they'd created, but are now completely unplayable. And also, therefore, on sort of idiosyncratic systems. Yeah, so they, you know, there's only sort of interpretations that can be given to the, the scores mm. because they're almost like, uh, you know, singular in their existence, and so mm. there's no way of like um, decoding the notation systems, mm. which I guess is the ultimate problem of the score as a curatorial model. You know how to present works which have meaning but also are not just standard notation hung on the wall. And speaking of Marco Fusinato whose work we're looking at on the wall right now, Mass Black implosions from 2007 through to 2012, I think he made these works. There was a huge Marco Fusinato work on the wall of that house, I remember, oh, really? like above the fireplace. And that to me exemplifies the strange politics of Marco Fusinato's kind of formal collapsing of the radical politics that he takes from, say, you know particular cultural moments or events that, you know, related to, say, um, radical Marxism in Italy or something, and mm -hmm. then creates these beautiful modernist aesthetic objects for the wall. Um, Which is seeing what this is doing too, I mean, yeah, Cornelius Cardu, his work is meant to be stark and inscrutable, right? Whereas this is like a... Well, he goes through a number of phases, and that's what's interesting about Cardio, I suppose, because he has this tension between, like, high modernist avant-gardism and then the, like, rejection of those, like, uh, sort of elitist principles of musical composition and a return to, like, um, amateurism and, and folk music mm -hmm. with tree ties and so on. Um, this is an example here. The February pieces are, are like 
quite complex. So without the lines, is this what? Yeah, the, the only thing I think Marco like. Fusinato's added is a line that selects as its to every single note arbitrary point. This say the center of the score, and then every single note has been traced back to the center. So it's this gorgeous, you know, vanishing point. Vanishing point. It just plays on the idea of like modern perspective. Mm. single point perspective so it kind of and makes the, the score look like it's got like mm. depth to it especially as it's like mounted on the wall in a, in a sort of tableau style like mm -hmm. installation yeah I'm not really I, I've always been pretty skeptical of these works as like interesting in any real way because it's it's related I imagine to what you know, is a part of Marco's like, music practice in relation to his artwork, mm. which is this sort of like shocking noise. Everything all at once. Yeah, and this sort of mm. temporal idea of like a... How does his artwork relate to his music practice? Well, they're kind of coterminous, I think, as in... Do they ever... You know, there's, there's one example that's really good, I think, which is him going and videoing, someone videoing him going into guitar stores and asking if he can, you know, demo a guitar on the wall there and see if he could, like, you know, t try it out and then proceeding to just, like, do a noise solo for as long as possible until the staff, um, you know, unplug him from the, um, from the amplifier. You know, down at Have you watched those videos of, like, Guitar Center on YouTube? There's that like aren't related to the there's like classic videos of people just going into like guitar center like 38th street or something yeah. like you know guitar guitar center at times square oh yeah yeah i have and seen some just, of these yeah. you know incredible because it's like this sort of one side is like the virtuoso trying to sort of like demonstrate how good they are at playing yeah. like stairway to heaven and then on the other hand it's like someone who's just like clearly just there for a good time and like seeing what they can get away tried to get away with a bit of a sort of, you know, impromptu performance at Alan's music or something. <laughs> I can imagine you kind of, it's like uh, related, I suppose, to the, the street performer, busker sort of, you know, the subject. The furthest I've gone is probably trying to write a song while in a while music in. shop, just to see if Because you're could. strumming away and then you realise, hang on a second, this yeah, is this the... Yeah, it's got something. Mm. Probably just need to play my guitar more. <laughs> One time I was in Brisbane and, um, on tour with Full Ugly and we're walking down the mall 
Yeah. Um, and what's the pedestrianized mall in Brisbane? Pretty sure it was. Well, it's in just Brisbane. like Fortitude Valley, the valley? sort of the center of the valley. There's the mall there, right? I don't know what it's called. I think called. it's the yeah, it's a pedestrianized mall. Mm. And we're all walking. You hear down. about the Prince of Denmark last night? He got refused entry to the bar because of Brisbane's lockout laws. He didn't have his ID on him. It's hitting the news today. It's like a big Prince thing. Frederick. Yeah. Crown Prince Frederick. Yeah, and he couldn't prove who he was when he was at the bar after say 11 o'clock and he wasn't allowed entrance. This is it. bureaucracy at its finest, the levelling. It's political correctness gone mad, Thomas. <laughs> hey, you can't say that. <laughs> hey, um, so we're walking down and all of a sudden we just hear this, you know, it was, it was um, a, a teenage girl playing on violin. Mm-hmm. And we're walking down and you could hear that she was a teenage girl when you were no you know she was like a bit scrimpy you right know? okay like a bit not like this you know what a violin sounds like when played solo not in yeah. the right acoustic and when you and when you're a sort of like level three of your um it was what, know, is, what is it called again your a a p g or something what's the sort of Music grades. Yeah, the rating like system. Grade eight the is grades. Yeah. A M E B. Australian music so examination. Down, we hear her, and you know, it's fine. It sounds like a teenage girl playing violin mm. through an amp, and and we keep walking, and up ahead is this guy playing kind of like free jazz saxophone, mm. and at this certain point in the traversing of these two acoustic environments. Mm. Every single one of us stopped and just looked at each other and we it was just the most ecstatic ecstatic musical occurrence and we all just started pissing ourselves. We 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 were falling on the floor laughing. Four people just independently came to this conclusion that the combination it, of the free jazz it sax was it was it. like something that you could never make up. Right, you know, and it was really happening down it was in the valley. Really, really happening in that moment. Wow! And I recorded it on my phone, and I'll see if I can dredge it up for the edit of this yeah, yeah. of this episode, because a little bit of what, what I don't know if it's the memory of it mm. or, or the reality. Do you feel like you captured it in for a second? Some, there's something there. Yes. Essentially, that's how I understand Bauhaus. Mm. Anyway, just a more functional and successful sort of um, like design mm. institution, whereas Steiner became this more sort of like mystical and alternative mode of practice. Mm -hmm. 
Bauhaus ended up being like the model for IKEA or something like that. Mm. Which is kind of sad. And Steiner for Noosa mums. Yeah. Wanting to send mm. Wild Rose. Wild Rose Johansson Conrad to designer school. Designer baby school. <laughs> Do you know my friend Michael is a How did design teacher? school become designer school? That's the question I suppose we all need to ask ourselves. <laughs> You have a friend who teaches at Steiner School? Yeah, yeah. And he's, um, his partner is a Steiner teacher as well, and they have two kids, mm. Wild Rose, and they live in Noosa now, but they were living mm. in New York to be Steiner teachers. Mm. And, um, yeah, Wild Rose and Winter Aluna Violet. Mm. Now they live in Noosa? Yeah, they're, they're originally from up that way, and yeah. the grandparents are there and everything, and they kind of made a go of it in New York. They've... Is there quite a big Steiner? No, there's not, so they need teachers. Oh, and as in there's an attempt to kind of introduce more Steiner-style teaching into New York. It's growing over there, so they need need teachers, so they were well-placed. And what happened? They just didn't like it, or they... Oh, it was just tough with kids and stuff, yeah. I think, having two kids over there. Yeah. The yeah. pay, you know, is not great, and the school promises a lot, and delivers mm. less. And Let's get over to um, Nathan's okay. installation. The Let's finish up Nathan Gray. Maybe I can knock it off the wall again, like I did last time. Oh, actually, no, I, I want to, before we go to Nathan, I want to show you, like, my favourite work in the exhibition. Okay. So you visited this already? Yeah, because I was here performing in there with Nathan a couple of weeks oh, ago. Yeah. So over here, where we have just basically straight up examples of the scores, Stockhausen, George Crumb, some more cage. We have this cage work, which to me is just like, this is the one. Atlas Eclipticalis, 1961-2, based on a star map. Mm-hmm. That I think was produced in the 50s and he just took a page of it and like traced over it with wax paper or something like that and, and, and created a score on the paper that determines the sort of intensities of the notes based on the constellation. It's nice. So what really... This is the best form of yeah. like... Why is this the best? Because if you think about where we started with standardized notation and, and uh, a kind of left-right, you know, top-to-bottom structure for how notes were meant to be played in a, in a kind yep. of conventional way, here we have like a centerless expanse of mm-hmm. musical potentiality, which mm-hmm. has been able to be formalized in a way that's like instantly kind of... Uh, recognizable mm-hmm. or you know um, intuitively um, like aesthetic or something mm-hmm. and at the same time it's just like completely random without the regressive restrictions and overbearing yeah or some like sort of like mystical element about how like you know the beauty of nature is contained in like the structure of a leaf or something as we've seen like mm-hmm. Dylan Matoro works like here it's just kind of chaos and order and it's like it's working. Mm-hmm. This is why I think someone like Cage is like such an important figure because he gets it right so often. Mm-hmm. You know, he was really interested in mushrooms and like a sort of private interest in collecting and understanding mushrooms. 
Yeah. That sort of those things kind of really do it for me. Mm-hmm. He just had an the interest. Spores. Yeah, but also just identifying mycelium. Yeah. Did he Hadith Pagribi? Is he a mushroom hunter? Yeah, I suppose that that's what you would call it. But just like an encyclopedic knowledge on one subject, you know. Would you say mushroom is the only vegetable that approaches the divine, the divine, the delectations of a, of the seafood? Yeah, I mean, think about how incredible and varied they are as a sort of subset of the vegetable family. Mm. Pure fungus. Yeah, Have you read the? Um, they go from like deadly to just there's this amazing benign, you know? Emily Dickinson poem. It's like the mushroom is the the gnome of the forest. Some <laughs> stupid like folksy title really? like that, but it's it's really it's, good. It's so beautiful. I just yeah. you know I I don't read a lot of poems poetry, but uh, that this one, one I don't know what ah oh, because I was looking up some special mushroom the. Milk cap, or I don't know, some kind of death cap. Not the death cap. <laughs> so you kind of. Actually, when I was young, I always used to draw that toadstool. Oh, yeah, the psilocybin. Yeah. So here, don't Silo you think Simon. that there's a relationship between these like 13th century mm-hmm. like manuscripts from, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of the Catholic, Catholic Church. Church and the, you know, Atlas Eclipticalis? five, six hundred years later, the, the way the notation ends up sort mm-hmm. of looking formally is kind of completely related. But the yeah. idea of the composition is almost in complete antithesis. Yeah, but the intuitive... Like the beginning and the end of, of like some sort of chapter. The intuitive fact of the notes of the black on the spectrum. Yeah, the And the world is waiting for the sunrise. Yeah, this is not how I didn't even know the title of the show. What? <laughs> I'm not on Facebook. I texted you at once and I was like, Is this the person? I'm not on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on the count of three, we all say Tom's tips. One, two, three. Tom's tips. tips! I feel too weird. Can we, can we, can we do like this accent? <laughs> uh, my name is um, Rudy von Gelica and we're here with Tom's tips and I'll edit this on my computer later. Tom's tips. Tom's tips. Tom's tips. <laughs> Through clenched teeth, that was Lucina Lane, the curator. So, why don't we just... But like, this is way too formal. You're good at this. No, but it's. I was actually thinking about doing that. We can't do that. It's a kid's film car. The invigilators are gone.